This is like the first time that we've both been on the podcast where I have to record the intro. Yeah, so live up to the moment. Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stopped making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey are me, Phil Cly, Jacob Siegel, and the great essayist and critic George Shalaba, who's joining us live at Fairfield University. George is the quintessential critic's critic, an outrageously learned and subtle thinker whose stylish, witty, and elegantly argued reviews have served as guides to the modern age for generations of writers and intellectuals. Christopher Hitchens, Norman Rush, James Wood, and Vivian Gornick have all declared themselves devotees, while Richard Rorty declared his essays models of moral inquiry. An award-winning essayist and critic, his writing has appeared in The Nation, Dissent, Book Forum, Riotin, N Plus One, and The Boston Review, among many others. He is a contributing editor, editor at The Baffler and the author of six essay collections and a memoir, How to Be Depressed. George, thank you so much for joining us. I'm pleased and honored. So the manifesto for today is going to be a essay that was Originally published in Commonweal, it is also in your most recent collection of essays, Only a Voice, called Last Men and Women. And we will be discussing it before I get into that. I need to note, we're actually, George and I are physically at Fairfield, which sponsors the podcast. Fairfield University is a Jesuit university in Fairfield, Connecticut, whose mission is to develop the creative intellectual potential of students and to foster in them ethical and religious values, and a sense of social responsibility. I also teach here in both the undergraduate English department and in their Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing program, and so we're very pleased to be associated with Fairfield, thank them for their sponsorship, and also uh, for putting us up in this incredible podcast studio. So uh, thank you to that. Uh, all right, George, we informed people that this would be about the price we pay for modern liberalism and your commitment to it nonetheless, right? And I think that that is an ongoing concern in your work, in your essays, both the proponents and the critics of modernity going back centuries, I guess, um, and the way in which we as modern people need to reckon with ourselves in a democracy, in the current economic system as we find it and how we should think about not just our political commitments and our moral commitments, but who we are as people in relationship to the system in which we find ourselves. And is it fair to say that you are a kind of um, uh, maybe two cheers for modernity person? Well, before I um, start to talk about that, <clears throat> I'm going to read just just a few lines from um, from an essay by William Gass. Ah, perfect. He um, he wrote this about uh, a visit to his graduate philosophy class by Wittgenstein. He spoke clearly yet haltingly, with intolerable slowness, with a kind of deep stammer involving not mere sounds or words but yards of discourse, long swatches of, in of inference. And since these sentence lengths were always cut short suddenly, in mid-phrase, maddeningly incomplete, and then begun again, 
what you heard was something like a pianist at practice, the acts that went into making that performance. That's, uh, that's how I often speak. Um, unfortunately, the comparison ends there. Uh, Wittgenstein was a genius, and I'm not. But, um, uh, but I hope you'll indulge me if I do um, start to sound like him and come up with something less inspired, but still my best. Um, uh, yes, two chairs is about it. Um, I, and I think that's a, a fairly consensus position, um, uh, except maybe for Steven Pinker on one side, and um, I don't know, Rusty Reno or some very traditional religious person on the other side. Um, most of us are very glad that uh, we don't live in a theocracy, uh, that, um, that our reading is not monitored and um, censored by either political or religious authorities, um, that our sexual preferences are are legal, by and large, as long as they don't harm others, and all of the other uh, benefits entailed by modernity. Uh, we also, most of us, uh, regret that um, that life has gotten grittier, um, often uglier, um, far more uh, rushed and even unhealthily rushed, um, that we are all simply bombarded, saturated with commercial messages um, uh, nearly every minute of the day. And all of these, I think, are consequences of modernity, of the, uh, of the individualism, the possessive individualism in particular that started in the 16th century and has developed through Adam Smith and through, um, through the capitalism of Marx's time and through the practically unrealizable, uh, rec rather unrecognizable to them, I would think, Capital, capitalism of our time. Um, the question is whether whether we can uh, marshal our civic resources to maximize the welcome consequences of modernity and minimize the the unwelcome ones. But I'd say on the on balance the um, you know, the experiment is, has worked out, has favorable results. So you begin your, your essay in Commonweal, noting that, you know, that criticism of modernity has a long history, and you start with Nietzsche's parable of the last man, because Nietzsche was certain that democracy, science, secular humanism uh, would definitely reshape civilization, 
and not necessarily for the best, right? That it would not just reshape civilization, but it would reshape the human beings and human nature inside of it. And his answer, you write, dripping with sarcasm and contempt, is that ordinary humans would become a kind of insect, a race as ineradicable as the flea beetle, a creature that would make the earth itself small. Here is Zarathustra's lament. Alas, the time of the most despicable man is coming. He that is no longer able to despise himself. Behold, I show you the last man. What is love? What is creation? What is longing? What is a star? The last man asks, and he blinks. We have invented happiness, say the last men, and they blink. They have left the regions where it was hard to live, for one needs warmth. One loves one's neighbor and rubs against him, for one needs warmth. No shepherd and one herd. Everybody wants the, everyone wants the same house. Everyone is the same. Whoever feels differently goes voluntarily into a madhouse. One has one's little pleasures for the day and one's little pleasures for the night. But one has a regard for health. We have invented happiness, say the last men. And they blink. That... Fun. <laughs> you say fun, Jake? I mean, it's fun to uh, hear it read aloud. It's fun to read. There's, uh, yeah, you know, there's a uh, a comic quality to it. But it, you know, the I don't mean to cut you off. Phil. the thing that um, George that you develop in your essay that I'm I'm immediately interested in here is that in the first part of the essay, you seem to acknowledge that this condition of last manness while perhaps uh, descriptively accurate, that there is something to this, that there may be, maybe there really is something in this sort of leveling quality of the, the democratic dispensation that leads to uh, a, a certain timidness of character or a contentment with mediocrity. And of course, you know, this is echoed in Tocqueville's writing about American democracy, and even in in his celebration of the American character, he is um, warning about this sort of relentlessly leveling and finally even authoritarian mediocrity in the democratic spirit. And, but and you, and you to, also see it in in contemporary critiques of culture. I, I, I'm going to dispute that, but the Nietzsche, but later, but you know, it's sort of like the. Modern man is like this consumer society where we um, satiate ourselves with sort of entertainments, um, cultural products, sort of like the, kind of the Marvel movie thing where it's like lacking genuine artistic value and yet is a sort of um, soporific to the imagination. Uh, I think that George's point, and he cites Rorty here in the essay, is that Perhaps there's something to that in terms of the public character of the society, of the democratic society, but that that's okay. And that we shouldn't overly lament that because it is only by relinquishing the claim to grandeur in public life that we're able to enjoy sort of liberality. And that it's it's only by the state's... Um, the state's relinquishing of this need to marshal grandeur or sublimity of spirit that we regain or that we gain to begin with a sort of space for ourselves as private individuals. And so 
that's the sort of first movement of the essays, uh, an acknowledgement that perhaps there is something to this. You could take it too far, of course, but but not only is it not entirely wrong, but maybe it really is inherent in the way that, you know, citing Rorty, you affirm inherent to the democratic character. Is that uh, fair in a, in a description of the, that sort of first part of the essay, George? Yes. Uh, you know, Rorty would never countenance describing uh, modern men and women as insects. Um, I mean, he's very much aware of what kind of thing that led to in the 20th century. Um, you know, he realizes, like every careful reader of Nietzsche does, that the Nietzsche is a provocateur, you know, is deliberately exaggerating for effect because he thinks that um, the level of uh, complacent stupidity uh, all around him in his culture is so great that you need to practically detonate a bomb, um, intellectually speaking, underneath um, people to get the message across. Um, so I think Rorty is saying, you know, we all know that it's not quite so bad as as Nietzsche um, Im- implies when he's when he's full out rhetorically. Um, Last men and women are not, you know, flee, uh, fleas, but they're pretty uninspiring, maybe. But even so, um, you know, if that's the price of uh, of a culture that's based on individualism and egalitarianism and freedom and welfare, um, you know, universal provision, then. Well, that's okay with me. Um, and yes, I do, as I say in the next paragraph, I do, that's where I stand too. But then you make this turn. That broadly is where I also stand, with the Enlightenment and its contemporary heirs, and against Straussians, religious conservatives, national greatness con- neoconservatives, Ayn Randian libertarians, and anyone else for whom tolerance, civic equality, international law, and a universal minimum standard of material welfare are less than fundamental commitments. Without, I hope, contradicting myself, I'd like to work the other side of the street for a while and acknowledge the force of at least some criticisms of modernity and progress. And your first interest uh, objection that you're sort of acknowledging is biology, right? And you reference William James's The Moral Equivalent of War and um, and also D.H. Lawrence, a, 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 long, a long love of yours, right? And certainly someone who had a, a respect for the, our, our bodily nature, right? As being sort of deeply important to, to us. And, and we'll give, I'll give some of the, the Lawrence. We are all fighters. Let us fight. Has it come down to chasing a poor fox and kicking a leather ball? Heavens, what a spectacle, spectacle we should be to the ancient Greek. Rouse the old male spirit again. The male is always a fighter. The human male is a, is a superb and godlike fighter unless he has contravened in his own nature in fighting to the death. He has one great crisis of his being. Um... And James basically argues like, 
yeah, there are certain martial virtues that the like we gain through war that are absolute and permanent human goods, despite the fact that he abhors war, and that uh, you write, you know, to the mill to quoting James, to the militarists, a world without war is a sheep's paradise, flat and insipid. No scorn, no hardness, no valor anymore, he imagines them saying indignantly, fie upon such a cattle yard of a planet. And Well, his, his point, though, is that uh, pacifism as a principled position needs to recognize the inborn drive to war and rechannel it, and that in being too um in abstaining too much from any recognition this is uh james's point as a pacifist in in it sort of insisting in a kind of chastity a moral chastity it ignores both what is good in war and the sort of or what is good in the martial spirit i should say not in in war itself what is necessary in it and um and it, it and the thing that Lawrence does there that I I quite like and that seems to get to the heart of the matter is, you know, Lawrence doesn't just say we need to uh, channel the martial spirit um, or else it'll lead to war. You know, Lawrence's point, it seems to me, is that modern mechanistic warfare, technological warfare destroys what is good in the martial spirit and and destroys the human scale the whatever was uh really primal and so it's not it's you can't even argue that that a war like the first world war is uh you know this sort of technological apotheosis represent you know it represents something primal in man no it represents sort of bureaucratic technological cataclysm um and yet there is something uh george that you are affirming that is present in uh men in particular in this case that needs to be recognized um and you know i i wonder though uh you know it it would seem that in other cases the sort of the the proponent of liberal democracy might argue that we've overcome other sort of biological drives or we have uh discovered that the the biological drives that led to socially uh disunifying or violent outcomes were not actually inherent and that there was a sort of reactionary fatalistic attempt to say that these biological drives towards let's say you, you might even look at something like uh violence between men and women you know violence in intimate relationships and say well we've eradicated that um so why why is it that you think that this is something worth preserving is it only the fact that it's biological or is there something inherent in the character of that biologically shaped martial spirit that you, that you find has some some kind of uh, dignity or or salutary outcome. Well, I think the uh, differences 
between James's uh, James's critique and, and Lawrence's, apart from their very substantial differences in temperament, uh, have to do with the situations in which they were made. Uh, in 1910, well, it was the end of a long golden period of peace in the West. Um, it had been, uh, you know, marred for James by American imperialism in the Philippines and in Haiti. Um, and because he was you know, exceptionally sensitive and fair-minded, um, he mounted a very early critique of imperialism. Um, but it, <clears throat> he wasn't reacting to anything like the horrors that Lawrence was reacting to. Um, the First World War was just, uh, it was like a, like a spiritual death, a complete cataclysm for uh, European writers, particularly English writers. And um, Lawrence, who had a German wife and was harassed because of it throughout the war, um, took it more personally than many other people, but um, but the mechanical nature of the war, the um, just the mindlessness, the bureaucratic character of the war, was so horrifying um, that he that he felt impelled to resurrect this myth of you know primal. Um, male face-to-face uh, -face conflict as a kind of archetype of, of sane human warfare. And um, I think it's, you know, I think it's not wholly implausible. I, um, at one, part of the, part of that, passage that I didn't quote was uh, 1919 when, and 18 and 19 when he was writing that, it was the time of the Irish Revolution. Mm. Um, and um, uh, one of the lines I left out says something like, um, send, uh, send the English into Ireland with... Um, with, you know, clubs and pikes. And the Irish will come out with shillelaghs and we'll have a rare old scrap such as the heart can rejoice in. Um, it, you know, I don't know that that would have settled matters in 1919 and, and evaded 70 subsequent years of wretched, um, bloody, mindless conflict. But I don't know, it would have been healthier, I suppose, than than the militarist militaristic response of the English government or or any or military militaristic responses generally. I think that's what he's um, basically trying to convince people is sane, saner than what we, what they had been watching for the last half decade. 
I, I think that the <laughs> the the thing that he wants is sort of this sort of face to face encounter, right? Even if it's uh, an aggressive encounter. I mean, I, I, on the one hand, yes, like World War One is often talked about in those terms, and, and you know, you had like the the machine gunner was John Keegan calls him more of a machine minder because the machine gun would be on a track and his job was just to do the two-inch tap, which mm. you just pat it from side to side as it sprayed bullets towards you know people coming down in, in, in marked positions. But it's not like, it's not like that um, sort of impersonal mechanism of death is new to warfare. And no matter the technology, that sort of evasion of a two people meeting on a sort of fair playing field is is the whole purpose of, <laughs> of military tactics. You know, it's not like, um, you know, medieval peasants loading a rotting corpse into a trebuchet to throw into a, a city under siege were um, engaging in a more uh, dignified means of combat or whether that was sort of uh, instilling particularly valuable... Um, expressions of, of, of some kind of virtue. There's a bit from Phil Chrisman's book. Uh, he has an essay called How to Be a Man. And he's talking about Harvey Mansfield and uh, and McAllister and other people who see manliness as this kind of deep-seated biological necessity which is threatened by modernity. Um, and Chrisman is skeptical of that. Not that there's something there, right? He says that Human nature and male nature, if either exists at all, are Kantian unknowables, apprehensible only secondarily in their manifestations as culture. Our species' single most predictable characteristic is our refusal to be defined by instinct, to let evolutionary history answer all our questions. Lions can no more tell men to be aggressive than bonobos can tell us to be polyamorous or cats tell us to be orange. Nor am I convinced that the crisis is new, brought on by feminism or modernity or reduced male bonding opportunities or the shift to agriculture. Our desire to project a greater animal simplicity onto the human past has been refuted again and again by anthropology, paleoanthropology, history, and the study of folklore. Yet it survives precisely because it meets our emotional needs. Conan the Barbarian is a modern invention like radio and Leopold Bloom, one of the only things we know for sure about those dense, boned, paleolithic supermen is that they used their enormous wrists to paint some of the most exquisitely observed art ever made. I don't know. Well. I, I feel like, uh, I mean, maybe, but... Um, Sorry, there's a mosquito chasing me here. Um, I, there is a, a point here that relates to liberalism, though, and to the, this argument about um, what liberalism provides and and what it fails to provide. And there, there is clearly something in the sort of... Um, modern liberal democratic character that simultaneously promotes technological militarism on the one hand and denies the sort of uh, primal drive on the other hand. And that strange relationship seems to me one of the 
more nefarious characters of liberalism and of modernity mm-hmm. in general. Uh, this this ability to maintain not not maintain but to massively expand the edifice of warfare and of militarism and to bureaucratize it and uh yet simultaneously to um moralize about the sort of uh the 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 biological or or um primal drives that play into it and so i I mean it's obviously unrealistic to advise the irish republicans to pick up shillelaghs and the the uh british to invade with billy clubs or whatever and i would you know i'm sure lawrence meant it in some sense as a provocation um and, and not literally but in terms of this question of last men, last women, liberal society, there is something important here. And um, George, I have to I have to put this back to you because um, I am curious, do you do you feel that that is correct? It, I, that's what I got from your essay, a sense that left sort of uh, unaddressed, or perhaps even covered up this thing that both James and Lawrence are um, talking about, this drive towards conflict and agonism even that, you know, that left unaddressed. It doesn't lead to peace. Liberalism doesn't resolve this. Um, you know, you get imperialism, you get the cataclysm of the First World War and and you also got, uh, you know, you also got sort of um, writers on the cusp of the First World War, uh, high-minded writers, delighting at the prospect of the cataclysm as something that would wipe away the scourge of the last man. You know, Thomas Mann, mm-hmm. famously, or I don't know about famously, but Thomas Mann, to to his lasting regret. But, you know, Mann in, I think it was early 1914, was writing about how this great war was going to wipe away the swarming vermin of Europe and the the, the wretched, decaying um, society. Um, so so I have to ask, uh, do you do you think that's correct? Has has liberalism failed to address something intrinsic in the human character in terms of the, the drive towards war? Uh, well, yes, probably, but I, I'm not sure I'd, I'd say that's its job. Um, Rorty uh, says that he thinks we should uh, segregate the public and the private, and liberalism ought to arbitrate the public uh, sphere, um, who has rights and how we distribute you know, the society's goods um, and leave the leave the issues of of meaning like national destiny and um, to individual um, sublimity he calls them leave sublimity to individual um, efforts and judgment 
I, you know, I don't know how that proposed division of labor would um, either foster or hobble um, war. Um, I suspect it would hobble it because it would, just because if you restrict the the, the public, um, you know, argument to what's um, what's good for us, then um, you make it harder, I think, to. to get people excited about great power conflict um, or whatever future. Um, I, don't, I don't know, but I mean, I'm not sure that... I think that liberalism is possibly orthogonal to, to war. I'm not sure that it so does. One of the... So William James, his one of his sort of approaches to deal with this is the, his, the idea of universal national service ever used to be conscri- conscripted for several years of hard and socially necessary physical work, no exceptions for class or edu- educational discrimination. And this will, you know, uh, help perpetuate some of the virtues essential for democracy, um, you know, intrepidity, contempt of softness, surrender of private interest, obedience to command. I mean, some of these sublimities are... Um, necessarily require more than being individual sublimity. I mean, the, the, the sublimity of being in in war, to the extent that there is, is very much about um, being part of a greater cause, being part of a mass of, of, of men. The philosopher J. Glenn Gray talks about the difference between sort of friendship and com- camaraderie, camaraderie being about being subsumed into a group. Um, and that, you know, James Moore pacifist notion of universal service where you're going to achieve some of those same you know offer people those same avenues for <laughs> sublimity are necessarily not not individual and I, I wonder if you do you support that idea of James um, and is that sort of you know is that something that the state needs to be doing that is distinct from liberalism or um, or is it a part of it? But, um, <laughs> James does say that um, George is looking up a passage um, from James I think uh, I, while George is looking that up I'll just add that I think that the uh, and to preview where George's essay goes, and people should certainly read it, it like everything he writes, it's a pleasure to read. Um, the final section deals with a category of, um, yeah. let's call them uh, virtues, characteristics that are, uh, I forget. I, I forget the yeoman the virtues. The yeoman virtues, right? I was yeah. about to say, not quite bourgeois, but the yeoman virtues. Basically, we're talking about can, can I read the hard passage? Work, yeah, thrift, me... hard work, thrift, 
diligence, uh, the kinds of um, the kinds of virtues that accord with um, you know with a sort of I mean yeoman American uh, middle class virtues, as it were. But the and I see George. It looks like you found the passage. What I was just going to say is that it, the the argument to bring it back to this sort of this argument about the continued viability of liberalism or is there a is there even a crisis of liberalism or is this just something that's sort of been concocted by um by alarmists and declensionists the argument would be that the not simply what phil pointed out which is that you can't replicate certain um you can't replicate certain sublimities or certain experiences outside of the collective that there there is no uh, one-on-one combat you know boxing will never replicate if there is something inherent in uh man that yearns for for war the collective experience uh simply simply uh simply relegating that to the private sphere is insufficient and maybe will just lead to to more war because it doesn't address it no knock on um, boxing that though, all, which is great yes nothing against boxing but then also that the um also that the those virtues that had those virtues that had supported liberalism's public health what you call the yeoman virtues within the realm of uh the liberal respect for individualism let's say those virtues themselves have somehow come under attack that there is a public force that has contributed to the um denigration of those virtues or to their to their attrition or their weakening something has happened to those yeoman virtues such that they have fallen out of favor and that is not a purely private or individual matter, right? If the, if this set of yeoman virtues had been essential to the thriving of liberalism, the argument, and I, I, certainly I would make this argument, the argument is that, or an argument one could make is that you needed, uh, there's always a, a public sense of what virtue is, that the, the, the liberal state can never simply be the adjudicator of pluralism, that it is always implicitly endorsing some idea of what the good is. And those yeoman virtues that you're saying are necessary to the health and thriving of liberalism have come under attack, not because they've simply slipped away in individuals due to consumerism, let's say, but because the state with its own vision of the good, however it articulates it, has turned away from those and towards something else. Yes, but I wouldn't distinguish, as you just did, the state from consumerism. Mm. The, um, the political economy of the 20th century is, to a, to a very significant extent, the, cre- the creation of um, uh, the American state. And the American state is, has been controlled through most of the late 20th and, sorry, late 19th and, and 20th century. Um, by the people who control the private economy. I mean, they're the ones who, for example, destroyed the agricultural economy. 
it was the Agriculture Department under Earl Butts and Richard Nixon who simply wasted the You can read about it in the essay on Wendell Berry in this book, um, or better still, in Berry's essays, which are marvelous. Um, uh, they are the ones who, um, you know, who at the behest of the giant uh, energy and auto corporations um, fail to failed to develop public transportations and instead paved the country over. Um, so I would say, um, you know, these virtues died not by the deliberate conscious design of either the either industry or the state, but simply because they were not compatible with the imperatives, basically the profit imperatives, um, that gained the upper hand um, throughout the 20th century. Um, I did want to, since you, since you, kind of have kind of relocated the discussion to these the yeoman virtues, I wanted to just uh, read a sentence um, or two, which might tie the, the two halves of the piece together. Do my apparently disparate sounding worries have anything in common? That is, worries about uh, about mass warfare on the one hand and, um, uh, and George I'm sorry to interrupt just uh, if you would just aim for the microphone yep, as sorry. you're reading that if you, if you can thank you uh, so do they have anything in common possibly this they all result from one or another move on the part of the culture away from the immediate the instinctual the face to face <clears throat> we are embodied beings gradually adapted over millions of years to thrive on a certain scale. Our metabolism's a delicate orchestration of innumerable biological and geophysical rhythms. The culture of modernity has thrust upon us, sometimes with traumatic abruptness, experiences, relationships, and powers for which we may not yet be ready, to which we may need more time to adapt. But time is short. And there's, yeah, I, I love that bit. Um, and there's an earlier piece where you're talking about the sort of shift, uh, which I just want to read because I think it sets up this, this part of the conversation well. In 1820, 80% of the American population was self-employed. Protestant Christianity, local self-government, and agrarian and artisanal producerism fostered a culture of self-control, self-reliance, integrity, diligence, and neighborliness. The American ethos that Tocqueville praised and that Lincoln argued was incompatible with large-scale slave-owning. Today, that ethos survives only in political speeches and Hollywood movies, in a society based on precarious employment and feverish consumption, on debt, financial trickery, endless manipulation, and incessant distraction, such a sensibility seems archaic. And I wonder if, and I note that precarious employment and debt and financial trickery um, are you know, part of that, I wonder if there are ways in which we can restructure a modern economy that can bring more of those virtues back. I mean, the the the, the um, most obvious thing that I was thinking about, in particular with that 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 note about the the face to face, is the decline in unions, the decline in people's sort of 
ability to function um, within a collective where they have sort of meaningful choice over the ways that their sort of work lives are governed and ruled. Um, and, you know, if, if there are things that, that we can do that are not necessarily a product of modernity so much to, 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 you know, that, that if there are problems that are not necessarily a product of modernity, but to the very particular type of modernity that we have here in the United States as a result of political decisions that we've made. Well, I think Christopher Lash would have answered that question with a thumping big book. Um, <laughs> uh, but he died. Um, he died, you know, tragically young. Uh, I sure don't know. Um, I think that I heard Garo Alperovitz say that there is a thriving um, movement of worker-owned businesses. Sounded great. Um, I haven't heard it anywhere else, and so I wonder how large and resonant it is but that would be great and the the union movement i mean you know maybe the uh maybe the greatest um most pulverizing blow against the new deal uh was the destruction of the union movement by republican administrations from nixon onward um by means of the national labor relations board um it was a deliberate you know sabotage of the union movement, and it succeeded just brilliantly. Um, so, uh, you know, those two things are where I'd start, I, um, which is not much help. But at the level of virtue um, and uh, or at the level of um, what kinds of – at the level of the human – let me say, you know, at the level of the human, like the, the point fundamentally is that there are certain characteristics that have been in abeyance that need to be revived in order to balance out what is um, wanting or oppressive even in liberalism. And there are various ways of dealing with this question. And, you know, I would say that the sort of post-liberalism, whatever that is, is uh, I, I think of post-liberalism as the attempt to preserve what was good and liberality while getting away from uh, particularly the technological bureaucratic character of late liberalism and, and, and in particular to, to return the focus to the human and to the human scale that you're talking about. Um but there's an interesting question, like that post-liberal, you know, blue labor in, in England, despite being a socialist political party, gets coded as right wing by many people because it uh, pays attention to those human values, also because it was pro-Brexit and some other things. But um, like in the United States, those yeoman virtues are not they're not neutral it's not as if they've just gone away there is a, a sort of 
been a deliberate um, ideological turn against them. And maybe that ideological turn, to your point, you know, you I, I think you correctly, you I, I agree with your correction of me that the the distinction between the state and consumerism is um a faulty one. But given that the state and the political economy are conjoined, one of the results of that is that when the state restructures the political economy, there's an ideological shift against the values that have been made obsolete that may not recognize itself as being uh, that ideological turn against those yeoman virtues may not see itself as aligned with the interests of the state. Nevertheless, it is aligned with the interests of the consumerist uh, state. But, but here we are and those virtues for whatever reason, whatever, uh, whether it was the state leading it or the the corporate interests leading it, those virtues are now considered suspect, um, particularly in, excuse me, progressive circles. And so, you know, there is a, that's a challenge, I I guess. I bring that up because um, this isn't just a question of political economy, right? It's also a question of human values. And the the values that you're proposing are, um, are not the ones that others are proposing. So do you see that? Do, do you see the conflict there? Well, I, I think I do. And, um, you know, I, I, I do wonder how, uh, how to fit together this uh, producerist vision, this uh, small is beautiful vision with with liberalism. Um, I must say, though, in I, um, everyone is unhappy with liberalism. And um, I have read, you know, a number of books uh, recently about, you know, why liberalism supposedly failed and what's wrong with it, and even reviewed some of them. But I still don't really... Um, I still don't really get it. Um, liberalism is about equal rights and it's about universal provision. And um, I, I don't see that the people who, you know, loudly proclaim that liberalism has failed are objecting to either of those two things. Um, anyway, it's, um, you know, so many people have written about the subject by now that, um, it would be, uh, audacious for anyone to claim to know what liberalism means. Um, at least that's how I feel. Um, so, so I, I guess at a similar junction in, um, History. William F. Buckley said he wasn't going to read another book about liberalism until his grandmother wrote one. Um, my grandmother is, you know, um, is uh, passed on and wasn't much interested in political theory anyway. But, um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm balked. I'm sort of 
flummoxed uh, by the question of how anything in particular, or, or anything in general, or my my own, you know, values in particular fit with with liberalism. I just, I think John Stuart Mill and John Rawls had it right, and I don't see that most people who object to liberalism, either on the right or the left, um, have uh, have the goods on it. I mean, there's there's much to be said beyond those two by leftists, but not in contradiction to liberalism, it seems to me. But then that leaves us with the problem that uh, no one can propose a plausible alternative, and yet the liberalism that is all that is available to us in some sense is depressing and is, uh, even if it's the best thing on offer, is um, insufficient in some way and is constructed at a scale that increasingly feels inhuman. And as you warn, I don't know if warn is the right word, but as you as you say at the end of the essay, right, if we don't want to get... Um, sort of absorbed into swarms if we don't get to if we, if we want to remain people and you know the, the our manifesto podcast uh, motto is may you continue to be a person and we mean that um you know that's a that's a problem right it's um and well, one of the responses that i have to it is i, I I want to reject the whole Nietzsche premise, actually. You know, I'm, I'm in favor of the little pleasures of the night and the little pleasures of the day, and I think they're a lot bigger than Nietzsche says. I mean, there's, there's a bit in, in Beyond Good and Evil that uh, a friend of ours, Santiago Ramos, who was also on the podcast, uh, sent to us re- recently from, uh, from Nietzsche, where he says, good is no longer good when, uh, when one's neighbor takes it into his mouth. And how could there be a common good? The expression contradicts itself. That which is common is always of small value. In the end, things must be as they are and have always been. The great things remain for the great. And I think I think that's just ridiculous snobbery. And I think I think that the a lot of the sort of basic common values that people have, the common pleasures that they have, the very basic pleasures of being a human being, of raising a family, being in a community, are the great pleasures, right? And the problem with the modern order is the ways in which uh, dysfunctions in the in the sort of system interfere with that. I think that there are, you know, great democratic heroes that um, that that are tremendously inspiring. That are not less men. I mean, you know, Henry Kissinger died recently, and and. I saw John Gans pointed out, he argued that Kissinger represented something fundamentally old world, a pre-ideological, pre-democratic orientation to, to politics. And, you know, I um, think I've mentioned before my maternal grandfather accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of Henry Kissinger. Uh, right, my right. grandfather, who emerged out of the labor movement, right, and became an American diplomat. And, you know, Kissinger's sense of history you know he didn't think history arced towards justice or, or peace or anything like that he'd written that history was series of uh, merely a series of quote meaningless accidents and you know for a guy like him you have this meaningless flotsam jetsam of, of history and 
Great statesmen with sharp intellects and sharp wills can reshape history to their liking, you know, as Richelieu had done in the 17th century and Metternich in the 19th, and as, you know, he, Henry Kissinger, was going to do in the 20th, but the rest of humankind, you know, is nothing. And it's interesting to read Martin Luther King's Nobel Prize speech nine years earlier as contrasted with Kissinger's because the King speech is full of pretty straightforward um, optimism and hope in the masses of people, right? He's accepting the prize on behalf of a movement which is beleaguered and committed to unrelenting tr- struggle. He notes that he accepts it with an abiding faith in America, and he says, I refuse to accept despair as the final response to the ambiguities of history. And he says, I refuse to accept the idea that man is mere flotsam and jetsam in the river of life, unable to influence the unfolding events which surround him. And then Kissinger begins uh, explicitly by rejecting that essential condition of human life struggle. And he says, Our experience has taught us to regard peace as a delicate, ever-fleeting condition, its roots too shallow to bear the strain of social and political discontent. We are seeking a stable world as a bridge to the realization of man's noble aspirations of tranquility and community. And I think that the there's a distinct difference between the sort of democratic temperament that believes in the common people and the common values and the common good and the small pleasures, the, the pleasures that are sort of democratically available, and this sort of fetishization of greatness, which I think is is very, very constant with a kind of modern capitalist movement. You know, if you look at like John Keegan talks about Ulysses S. Grant as the perfect democratic style of, he calls it unheroic leadership. Not that Grant was cowardly, he was physically courageous, but, you know, he understood staff work. He had a staff where casual conversation and and a sort of relaxed atmosphere was possible. Understood that his uh, ideas about himself were subordinate to the president's political goals in part of the war. He didn't have a sense of himself like, say, General MacArthur. And... Keegan contrasts that with the false heroic leadership of Adolf Hitler, where Hitler is like trying to be the kind of personification of courage, the mystic avatar of the people. And I think that you see in modern mass culture this constant search for these sort of like false heroic models who serve as the avatar for whatever it is our discontent is. And, and in America, a lot of times that's like, titans of industry, Elon Musk fetishization, this sort of thing, these kind of um, desire to have somebody be your avatar rather than somebody who's a leader of a movement that is fundamentally about the, the meaning and purpose of the individuals. And I think that democratic liberal life does offer those opportunities for genuine greatness and struggle that to me, much more important than any of the things that Nietzsche says are the great values. Uh, I'm sorry, I find this just fundamentally evasive and uh, sort of <laughs> like patting yourself on the back for democracy's virtues without without dealing with the matter at hand, which is not do we wish to resurrect um, Nietzschean aristocraticism. Okay, you can reject the Nietzschean aristocratic view, sure, but the whatever the problem with liberalism is right now, 
And this is not to suggest that anyone has come up with a viable alternative, though I, I think actually maybe there is some of that. But but whatever the problem with liberalism is now, it's not a failure to uh, enact greatness in, in that Nietzschean sense. The, it is a failure in the, in the broadest sense, right? Why are well-educated people on college campuses um, reporting ever higher rates of depression and also of um you know other kinds of uh, uh mental disorders and and unhappiness why is there a general unhappiness that seems to be concentrated particularly in the sort of citadels of technocratic expertise why is family formation so difficult for so many people why are rates of suicide increasing why are rates of drug overdoses increasing in this country why like th there is a real problem why why does america seem to be losing its ability to conduct uh civic culture in anything resembling a sort of genuinely democratic spirit there's something the matter here that is not you know it's not it's not good enough anymore to say um, to, to to counterpose Martin Luther King and Henry Kissinger and then congratulate ourselves on the democratic spirit. I'm sorry, it's a, we're it's gotten too bad for all of that. We need to be more attentive to what has has gone wrong, and that doesn't mean you need to uphold the kind of um, you know brutalist approach to history the kissingerian approach that not at all but that still leaves us with the problem and it leaves us with a problem also of scale you know it, like there's a problem of values that is there are certain human values that seem undernourished um you know, look, the one way to look but, but, at what but, but Jake, you're assuming writing, you're yeah. assuming that all these problems that you list somehow are, are on sort of one side of the argument. And what I'm saying with that with that the reason that I brought up those examples was not because I'm so proud of myself for liking, liking Martin Luther King, right, and preferring him to, to Henry Kissinger. But there's a real difference of emphasis that is meaningful. And if you're trying to solve those problems, what sort of values are you going to look to? What sort of you know, perspective do you have um, about what is actually important in human life? What is your sense of of the human, your relationship to society that is going to determine what's going to even count as a solution, right? And a lot of the, the kind of critiques of, of uh, certain types of, of, you know, certain types of the, you know, uh, critiques of liberalism assume that all of these things fall in one side of the uh, of the uh, you know uh, of the ledger, and that they're not you know that these these problems that you list you know <laughs> there are a lot of different answers for um, for each of those problems, and I think that uh, you know the question is what are the fundamental values that you are going to sort of center yourself on as you go about uh, approaching, you know, even kind of looking for solutions, right? You know, if you if you accept the kind of Nietzschean critique, and, and look, 
that stuff's very alive and present. This is like the, you know, sort of in a kind of degraded form, like the Bronze Age pervert and all that sort of, you know, wild stuff on, on the right. And to me, that is not just sort of diagnostically wrong, but it's, it's sort of, it's pathetic and loses its sense of where actual value in human life comes from and always has. Well, Phil, I envy you the, <laughs> the experiences that must have gone into um, your sense of the, of the nobility and virtue of uh, ordinary people. Um, my family, not merely my immediate family, but my extended family, was um, utterly uninteresting. I never heard anyone, even in my extended family, say an interesting thing in my whole, ever. And moreover, I never, you know, they were, they were not bad people, they were just very ordinary people, but I never knew of any of them doing anything notably, um, you know, brave or generous. Or They were, you know, they were Nietzsche's, um, Nietzsche's last men and women. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't feel uh, contempt for them or ill will um, any more than Rorty does. I think Rorty's point is that, um, you know, it's, it's really true that, you know, of the eight billion people out there, most of them are pretty um, pretty dull and selfish. Um, but that doesn't justify mistreating them. Um, on the contrary. Uh, and I do also think that, um, I forget what the last part of that sentence you quoted from him was, but the great, great things are um, typically for... Um, the great things remain for the great. Yeah. That seems axiomatic. Um, uh, you know, as someone who's strived and failed um, to attain greatness, at least by my own standards, um, I, that seems profoundly true to me. Um, so, basically, I think we already got it right. But, but if the, okay, if we can agree then that mistreating ordinary people, even if they're dull and unexceptional, is, um, I, I, I don't, or even ignoring it, them. I don't. Or, or I, I don't. The, I don't think they're dull and exceptional. Uh, well, but hold on. Yeah, but yeah. but the point remains. If okay, fair enough. That there there is no justification, um, or at the very least, you know, we have seen the results of. We can evaluate both sides of the ledger. We know what it means to try and conscript people into some system of grandeur and sublimity, and we know what it means to sort of leave them alone and and allow them freedom and autonomy and and if we and we're saying okay we favor the freedom and autonomy 
fine. But but the the liberalism that grants them that freedom and autonomy is also implicated in the system that oppresses them in other ways. And not only oppresses them in other ways, but while promoting certain values, individual freedom, autonomy, um, uh, it has been, particularly, I would say, in the last, um, I don't know when I would date it to exactly, but let's say in the last 50 years, that the sort of combination of yeoman and familial uh, virtues, yeoman and familial qualities that seem generally to promote contentment and satisfaction, the things that most people seem to yearn for and that provide them with meaningful uh, agency in their own lives, a meaningful sense of satisfaction in their work, etc., that liberalism, liberalism now referring both to the sort of ideology of liberalism and to the political economy of liberalism, that liberalism has been in some ways positively destructive of those things that promote the, the, the you know, that it's not simply a neutral actor. It hasn't simply removed itself and then remained outside and, and left people to their ordinariness. No, it, 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 in granting freedom with one hand, sort of imposes and, and constrains and molds with another hand. And, and that's the thing we have to be dealing with, not only the opposition between liberalism in the abstract and, you know, whatever right-wing fanaticism. By the way, we have a question from our audience, which uh, is related to Great. this. Uh, so this is this is actually the great Carol Ann Davis, uh, who teaches here uh, with me at Fairfield, and is a poet and essayist, author of Psalm, Atlas Hour, Nail on the Tree, uh, which is a collection of essays about experience raising two sons in Sandy Hook um, on the day and aftermath of the shooting there. Uh, so here, Carol Ann. Hi, George. Hi. Wonderful to have you here. Um, and thanks for uh, entertaining my question, uh, which I wrote to Phil to make sure that it was okay. Um, and I want to ask about your ordinary family, um, which I also come from ordinary. Uh, but I, as a teacher of poetry, uh, really truly feel uh, that everyone is capable of writing it and of feeling beauty. I don't think I could teach it if I felt otherwise. Um, so I wondered if it's a liberal idea to, uh, well, the way I put it is wince poetry, which belongs to everyone in a world uh, that we've been describing pretty in pretty stark terms, um, and wince beauty, which belongs to everyone. In your ordinary experience of your family, um, was there room for beauty? Do you think that I could have taught poetry to anybody in your family? I'm just kind of wondering about that. Uh, a second part of this would be, what are we going to tell? What, are, what is our response to young people who have survived, you know, 10 years of lockdowns and then COVID in terms of, of the declines that we've been discussing? 
the questions. Well, Either is fine. <laughs> you definitely couldn't have taught poetry to my mother. Uh, <laughs> she was um, had no interest except in dinner and what was on sale at the local local market. Um, my brother was um, was hustling for you know he had about six jobs and. Um, in the two or three years after he came back from the army. Um, my father might. He would occasionally read a book. Um, yeah, I like to think of you teaching in poetry. <laughs> <laughs> you like to think of poetry in the context of that, right? Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Does it clarify something in our family thinking to think about the one who would have written poetry? Well, <laughs> you know, he he would have written very little, but he he had a he had a lively curiosity. Um, uh, which he never really pursued. He didn't, you know, he got home tired from work and mm-hmm. didn't have anybody else to talk to at work. Um uh but um, but he sort of lit up when he would, he would hear something he thought interesting. So, yeah, he would have liked hearing you, if not writing for you. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything re- redemptive? I know it's hard to it's hard to scale that up to it being any kind of redemptive impulse for the culture that there's always people who light up when language strikes them a certain way. I know that's an optimistic view. Yeah. Well, I think um, everybody should have an opportunity to uh, learn about poetry or um, or learn to blow glass or, um, I don't know, um, learn to... Um, play bocce, that would have been his mm-hmm. preference. Um, uh, you know, those things are available, but for people like him, they were, I mean, he, they weren't more than he could afford, but they were a stretch. And, um, you know, it's not that there was never any time, but as I say, he got home tired and then for a long stretch worked overtime a lot just to make my college tuition. Mm-hmm. Um, so he never did learn anything particularly gratifying. Um, but I think everybody should be able to, and if that means increasing the minimum wage or... Um, promoting unions so they <clears throat> are better paid or making it I'm not I, I'm not sure that I would support directly supplying you know enriching activities to people but making it possible through better a better political economy for them to pursue it themselves I think would make a great difference in the in the culture perhaps go back to our yeoman values a little <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
Jake, do you have any last words, George, any last words? Well, I was just going to say about the, uh, you know, what do we say to young people after um, COVID and, and lockdowns? Um, I, I don't know uh, that there is, I'm trying to think about how to say this uh, so it doesn't sound like uh, bleak and um, defeatist, but because I don't mean it that way. I mean, I, not just the messaging, I genuinely don't mean it that way, but I guess um the the young people the thing that'll matter for them is the, the um the political culture and the the possibilities that they enter into will matter more than what we say to them and um to to meaningfully change those things it seems to me is going to require a tremendous tremendous effort and um and so it's important that we not give in to false temptations and then false idols but also that we not be um blind to um not only what's sort of cracked in the liberalism we have but where that liberalism is tending and um the you know the um the degree this is such familiar ground on this podcast i won't go over it all again but the the degree of change i think that artificial intelligence once it scales up is going yeah. to bring um into political and economic activity also is going to be extraordinary and so one of the things i take from george's essay here is that we have a tendency, a dangerous tendency to sort of allow technologies a, a kind of talismanic power over us and and we um, we give in to the sort of uh, technology, the, the shape that technologies assume and we need to find a way to more meaningfully exert what are our, our human values over those technologies and that's a that's a very um unappealing message to deliver to young people but actually doing it would be good for those young people i also think george's emphasis on the the face-to-face the sort of local and intimate encounter with another human being i mean this is related to what i think about like i actually think that those are the great pleasures in life i think those are available to everyone and you know one of the nice things about modern technologies is you're able to see that you know on 99 percent of the things that he opines about elon musk is a blithering idiot with no particular wisdom you know like the people that you think of as great um are not necessarily i mean this is what uh socrates tried to tell us in the gorgias you know thousands of years ago but actually like sort of Greatness in terms of what society values or, or affords power or prestige has nothing necessarily to do with anything that is sort of deeply humanly valuable. Um, and, yeah. I would tell young people um, that it's important to get into the habit of um, talking to people who share your situation uh, in school uh, at work, um, in your 
in your neighborhood. Um, just the cumulative effect of individualized consumption and, um, again, the lack of, of organizing at, at the workplace is to make people ignorant, unaware of what, what their, uh, their comrades feel. Um, and, um, well, and, um, it's, I don't know if it's going to be empowering to um, realize that other people share your discontents, but bound to be a little. Here, here. Thank you, George. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom? I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>